Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Today we're going to be focusing pretty much the whole episode on Apple's earnings, which came out on Tuesday afternoon. We're recording this the following day on Wednesday afternoon. Um, And we'll probably spend a few minutes towards the end of the episode talking about a piece that came out today on Mashable. Um, uh, Editor at Mashable, Lance Ulanoff, um, interviewed Phil Schiller at the Apple campus along with um, some other Apple folks and uh, had some very interesting insights and quotes from them. And so we'll talk about that a bit right at the end of the episode and then wrap up with our weekly pick as usual. So we'll kick off with earnings. And uh, obviously lots to digest here as as usual. We uh, did a little preview of earnings last week and talked about some of this stuff. But uh, uh, Aaron, what were kind of some of the big things that stood out to you? Um, I I, I think actually Apple's guidance was interesting. I think a lot Hmm. of people were expecting a pretty down uh, guidance for the holiday quarter coming up. I think everybody felt like the bigger iPhone 6 and 6 and 6 Plus were where the big bump came from last year and that Apple wouldn't be able to keep up with that bump this year. Right. I think so predicting any growth for the for the holiday quarter versus year ago quarter was a pleasant surprise. Mhm. So that was one yeah, of the biggest things. Yeah, there was certainly a lot, of, a lot of worries that there wouldn't be any growth this time around. And, and right. it's modest, right? So the guidance, I think, is about 1% to 4% growth year-on-year year or something like that. So it's obviously well down on the year-on-year year growth rate from the last couple of quarters. They, um, they guided that way last year too, though, if I remember right. Am I remembering right? I think they guided that way last year, like a modest growth. And then obviously with the 6 and 6 Plus, they kind of blew it out of the water. In fact, it was a bigger, it was a pretty big guidance deviation last holiday quarter. Um, yeah, given how conservative they've been in general recently. Right, and how they've been actually getting, I mean, they've been getting pretty close on guidance for a while mm-hmm. now, but but last year, the, the year ago holiday quarter was a surprise, and, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. Yeah, the other thing that's worth bearing in mind with guidance this time around, too, is the currency impact. So... I think on the call they talked about a 700 basis point impact from currency. So, one to four percent growth is actually more like uh, eight to eleven percent growth um, in constant currency terms. So, obviously, you know they don't report in constant currency. You know, ultimately the money they put in the bank in the U.S. is, you know, U.S. dollars, and and that's converted from whatever local currencies people spend money in. But um, you know, the point was the underlying growth here is actually you know closer to 10 percent. Um, right. But you know, the, with the currency impact. Um, it's significantly less. And, uh, you know, that's been a theme over the last year. Apple's emphasized it actually a lot less than other big companies. You know, last week, um, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft all reported, and they all made reference to constant currency comparisons a great deal throughout the earnings call. And basically for most of those companies, it's the difference between, you know, growth and not growing or very modest growth compared to healthy growth. Um, You know, Apple, we've seen very healthy growth anyway, despite the currency problems. But this is the first time it really was a significant um, thing that was mentioned on the earnings call in the context of the guidance specifically. Yeah, and you know, the dollar is not going to be strong forever. I mean, mm-hmm. Yeah, at some how, point that stops, right? I mean, the, yeah, there's gravity, and the, and the dollar's going to come down eventually, or other currencies mm-hmm. are going to catch up, and and, uh, and and that will go away. But it certainly is a big problem now. Pro- I mean, mm-hmm. I say a problem. It's certainly still an issue right now in reportings. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned margins as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think, you know, Apple's margins have been 
growing. And I think also the fact that they predicted the same stronger margins, like hovering just under 40% for holiday quarter is also a big deal. Um, I, you know, over the years, I think investors, I, I can think of a few times, I mean, the Apple stock gets sort of strangely punished at different moments. But uh, one of the legitimate reasons I think that you would maybe get out of Apple stock is concerns about where the margins are headed. Because um, Apple's always had really healthy margins. And uh, it seems like they're strong and are, are, are remaining buoyant. And, uh, and that's encouraging, and especially when they've got so much low-end competition in the really important China market. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're able to sustain these margins and still grow in China is encouraging, I mean, as far as their financial performance goes. Right, right, absolutely. Uh, one thing that always drives margins for Apple is the iPhone. Um, so iPhone has higher margins than almost everything else that Apple sells, except perhaps a few accessories. Um, and as such, you know, the greater the percentage of overall results the iPhone makes up, usually the higher margins are. Um, and you know, iPhones, the last four quarters, the iPhone's been the highest it's ever been as a percentage of total Apple revenues in particular, which means it's also you know, the greatest driver of margin. So that's been a big help, the fact that iPhones become so dominant. Um, and it's interesting because there's been you know, some people who have been concerned about the dominance of the iPhone. You know, I tweeted out a chart yesterday showing you know, kind of iPhone way up here and everything else way down there, essentially, and sort of said it's a stark reminder of how Apple's really about the iPhone and then everything else. Um, and people kind of responded to that in different ways. And some people saying, is that a problem for Apple? And I think that is one of the most interesting questions is, you know, to what extent is the dominance of the iPhone in Apple's results a good thing or a bad thing? And I think, you know, in, in a period, you know, two plus years ago, about two to four years ago, when iPhone growth was really slowing down, you could argue this was a problem. It looked like the iPad might solve that problem at the time. Of course, we know better now. Um, but, you know, if the iPhone really is the dominant product and if that stops growing as strongly, then, you know, that could affect overall results fairly significantly. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I've sort of really noted and, and feel is kind of the, the bull case here is that a lot of the new things that Apple has done hang off the iPhone in some way, such that the iPhone mm-hmm. creates this kind of halo or... Um, you know, ecosystem effect, essentially. So you look at Apple Music, you know, by far the biggest device that's going to be consumed on is the iPhone. You look at the Apple Watch, well, as of right now, that's entirely dependent on the iPhone and is essentially an accessory to the iPhone. Um, You know, so many of the new things that Apple's doing are tied to the iPhone in some ways. Uh, Apple Pay, obviously, is another one. Um, So to that extent, you know, the iPhone itself may be dominant, but a lot of the other stuff also benefits from the growth of the iPhone. So that, that helps. And even as the iPhone itself slows down again, which it inevitably will, um, you know, those other things are going to grow because penetration within the iPhone base will grow. And so I think that's an interesting sort of counter-argument there. Uh, But at the same time, if you add up everything else at Apple right now, and again, thanks to currency, uh, this past quarter, I think it actually shrank year on year, um, whereas the iPhone obviously grew year on year. So without the iPhone, you know, the growth would disappear. Um, and that's really the result of all these different moving parts in the sort of other category, as you might call it, moving against each other. Things like iPads and iPods, accessories to some extent, especially Beats kind of going down year on year um, versus, you know, Apple Watch as an e-product category going up but still being relatively small. Services in total, so iTunes and the App Store and so on going up over time. Um, so these things are moving in different directions. And Mac actually being surprisingly resilient too. And, and I know that's something that you wanted to talk about some more, the Mac. Yeah, well, I, I think um, 
the uh, PCs are doing so badly right now. I, I think right. they're at, you know, I think on a quarterly basis, I think they're down something like 10% is, I think, what I saw versus... Yeah, that's versus, been about that, yeah. Yeah, versus the last quarter. I mean, that's that's quite a bit. That's I mean, and the PC market is, has had cycles like this before. So, I, But this is different this time because there's so many alternative devices where in the past... You know, the cyclical nature of PC sales seem to be mostly tied to the economy. I think now it's a question of whether or not it really is cyclical or if it's just if there's more of a structural shift happening as people are becoming happier with other devices instead of PCs like phones or tablets. And uh, and so for the, you know, the, the vibe I got in preparation leading into the earnings call was that... Uh, was that the Mac was going to shrink. In fact, everybody seemed to say that the Mac, everybody kind of expected the Mac and the iPad to shrink, and the iPad did shrink. But I was surprised that Mac sales grew, and didn't grow a lot. I mean, they grew 3%, but that's 3% in an industry shrinking by 10%. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that, it, it. so I mean, really, I mean, it, not that you could say that that's 13% year-over-year growth, but but it is something. I, I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty impressive to keep to keep that product still growing, you know, and, and and the truth is it's not like Apple's done any really new, amazing stuff with the Mac this year. Like, like they, I mean, nothing, I mean, there's the, there's the, the red the new Max. MacBook, and they did mention that and, and the, and the and new the, MacBook was a big driver of sales. That's one thing they said on the earnings call. And that surprises me because the, the MacBook feels like the original MacBook air to me. In the mm-hmm. sense that it's, you know, there are going to be people who like it and they are going to, and of course there are going to be people that buy it, but I feel like the MacBook's impact on the Mac line is going to be much bigger next year and the year after mm-hmm. because it's a pretty compromised device still. And I think a lot of buyers still see that. I, the truth is I have not seen that many MacBooks around. Yeah, no, I haven't either. And, yeah. uh, and I think uh, the effect of the Mac. Of the, of the MacBook is going to be much bigger as those design lessons start playing out in like the MacBook Pro and other devices. And so I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think keeping the Mac afloat this year, especially considering the number of changes, the relatively small number of changes that were made, even considering, even including the MacBook in that conversation, I think that's impressive. Mm, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder if the MacBook really benefited in this particular quarter from back-to-school sales because, of course, it's the quarter that ends at the end of September. So that's right. the quarter when most people going to university for the first time or heading back there or whatever um, will be buying a new laptop. Um, and so, you know, being at the sort of cheaper end of the MacBook line as well as, you know, being very light and portable, so great for taking to lectures and so on. Um, and, you know, if you're only going to be taking notes and doing papers and stuff on it, then it's, it may be actually quite good for that. And the compromises that you talked about don't matter quite so much, perhaps. See, I so I wonder th- if that benefited from that somewhat. I would have thought so, too. But I have about, let's see how many students. I have about 150 students across my different classes this semester. And I haven't seen one MacBook. Hmm. Not a okay. single one in class. Yeah. Do you, are your students mostly first year? Are they a mix of sort of... It's a mix. I've got some freshmen. Yeah. I've got some upperclassmen. I've got some graduate students. It just depends on the class we're talking yeah. about. But I haven't, yeah, but I genuinely have not seen a single MacBook. Mm. And that includes walking the halls. I mean, that includes like, you know, going to class from my office, walking across campus. Mm-hmm. I can't remember seeing them. And, and usually I notice that kind of stuff, especially because the gold color. I mean, come on. 
that, right, like yeah, that'd be quite distinctive. Yeah, it would be distinctive and easy to notice, and mm. I can't think of having seen one. Yeah, okay. Um, so back in episode 12, we spent quite a while talking about China specifically, but that obviously you know, was a focus um, on the earnings call too, and I think our, our uh, China ep- discussion back in episode 12 was prompted by the email that Tim Cook sent to Jim Cramer and of course, you know, a lot of the same themes from that email were, were touched on in the earnings call again. You know, China growth really strong. Um, you know, basically Tim Cook saying in the strongest possible terms, look, whatever else may be happening in China, it doesn't seem to be affecting us at all. Uh, and there was this sort of fairly notable quote where he said something like, you know, if I just turned off all the news and everything else and just looked at our own internal data, I wouldn't have any idea there was anything negative going on in China at all. And I know you kind of took issue with that in the conversation we were having before we started recording. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Well, it just seemed like a funny thing to say because he's talking to investors. And, I mean, it it definitely didn't come across like he was sticking his head in the sand. But uh, it does kind of, it, it gave a weird vibe. I mean, I, I realize the reason he's saying this is, is to instill confidence. But it, it sort of gave the vibe of like, hey, our sales are still doing great. We're not sure why, but we'll take it. You know, which is a funny message to communicate because you ought to know why you're still growing in spite of the bad news. And uh, I feel like that was never really explained or addressed. I mean, I think, you know, there is this there's this fact that the middle class is growing in China and with that mm-hmm. more Apple customers are coming on board. But uh, but it, yeah, that that I mean, I realize, again, that was to instill confidence. But when you consider that, it seems like he's sort of saying like, hey, we're still afloat. We're not sure why, but we'll take it while we've got it. Seemed like a weird message to send. And it was definitely yeah. an unintentional one. But that was a, that was the feeling. Yeah, and I wonder if he just failed to kind of explain the why, you know, and is that, is that kind of your point, that he, yeah. he didn't really go into the why? Because, you know, we talked about that, I think, too, in, in our episode about China. Um, and, you know, there are, there are good reasons to believe that, you know, iPhones will be somewhat, not completely immune, but somewhat resistant to the broad kind of macroeconomic problems in China, partly because, you know, they're mostly purchased by people that are relatively well off anyway, partly because of the you know, immense explosion in, um, you know, the middle class that you were talking about, partly because, you know, Apple's gaining share with all these new Apple stores and and the China mobile partnership and all the rest of it. So essentially all those things together both outweigh the negative trends and and Apple and its positioning as a brand in the market makes it somewhat immune to this stuff. But yeah, it was perhaps strange that he didn't articulate that more clearly. And I think to to some extent that's the problem here. Everybody's kind of been assuming... Everybody else is suffering in China. Why shouldn't Apple? And perhaps Apple doesn't done a good enough job of explaining why it won't or shouldn't. Yeah, and and Apple knows all the stuff you said, right? I think mm-hmm. they. I mean, right, it's I, not like they don't know. Yeah, exactly. But 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 yeah, you know, this is an investor's call, and like you said, I think everybody. In fact, over the summer, Apple got hammered because, along with a bunch of other tech companies, but Apple got hammered because of what was happening in China with the stock market there, and everybody's expecting the worst for Apple. That Apple is staying afloat. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's good communication with investors to not really tell them why they're still staying afloat. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it instills as much confidence by by just right. sort of saying, "Hey, we can't tell a difference, so we're good." You know, it's just it, yeah. I think they should have given a more thorough answer as to why they're still doing well in China. And I mean, it's also important to say that this ninety nine percent growth that they saw in China was because they were able to get the success launched on time versus last mm-hmm. year. I mean, really, the year-ago quarter 
was the the phone that that people in China were buying was the 5s right uh, because they didn't have access to the 6 yet and so 99% growth is comparing the 6s against the 5s as far as this quarter versus year ago quarter right and, and so i so i think that's that's I, I can't say it's overstating growth. It's real growth. These are real phones sold, mm-hmm. but it's right. kind of it is a one time thing. If as the, long as the they're comps, launching on time next year, right? The comps, as they like to say, are favorable in this particular case in China. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly year on year growth in China this quarter last year was single digits. Right. Um, to your point, because in the September quarter there were no iPhone, no new iPhones on sale. So, um, you know, the real growth took off in the fourth quarter of the calendar year, the December quarter, Apple's first quarter. Um, and then, you know, obviously stayed at that same rate in the next quarter and then went even higher um, later on. So, yeah, it, it's it's off by a quarter, basically, which makes those comparisons difficult to make. Um, but, you know, I think then the next quarter will be the critical one because uh, that was the first really huge quarter in China. Right. Um, so that's one we'll have to really watch. Any, anything else on the iPhone? I mean, I feel like, you know, we've kind of danced around a lot of different topics so far. Maybe useful to sort of drill down a bit on specific segments or products that we've talked about um Mm -hmm. anything else on the iphone side just that the average selling price for the iphone has been growing i mean we talked about Mm -hmm. that a little bit relative to margins generally for apple but uh you know that's it's gone from six hundred dollars to six hundred seventy dollars obviously part of that has to do with the plus size version of the iphone 6 and 6s i think uh this 16 gig entry level you know memory is clearly not enough for the vast majority of people. And so Apple pushes buyers up the price ladder a little bit with that. That mm-hmm. bugs me because it feels artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels almost like a foreign country propping up its currency. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, because I, I mean, that's not sustainable over time. Um, eventually, right. Apple's going to have to bump, even with app thinning and all the other stuff, eventually, mm-hmm. Apple's going to have to bump up the base uh, right. storage. And uh, and then more people, you think, will opt up for the lowest storage tier I, I as do, opposed to the I second think, lowest. Yeah, and I think it's going to drag down average selling price. I mean, because it's a $100 difference. And the average selling price in the iPhone has grown by $70 over the last year, which is a lot. But, but mm-hmm. I mean, once Apple ships 32 gigs, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to that average selling price. I think it's going to come down. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, I, you know, they've talked about the fact that it's not just, obviously, the storage, but obviously the 6 Plus um, as well, yeah. and 6S Plus now, you know, driving the higher SP. So it won't eliminate that entirely, but, no. you know, we don't know for sure whether it's kind of half the effect or, you know, two-thirds of the effect or one-third or what the exact mix is in terms of what's driving the higher ASPs. But they've certainly mentioned that the higher storage tiers being a driver of, of higher selling prices. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's now, you know, four quarters of much higher ASPs, you know, ASPs in the sort of 650 to $700 range, whereas they'd been dipping below 600 a year ago. So um, that is a significant difference for, for the iPhone in a positive way. And then um, at the same time, and maybe this is a good segue to the iPad, but the iPad average selling prices have you know, fallen from $600 at the beginning, which is where the iPhone was a year ago, um, down to just above $400 for really the last year and a half. Um, so, you know, that's gone in a very different direction. It'll be very interesting, I think, to watch what happens to that with the iPad Pro launch, especially given, you know, overall iPad sales are shrinking significantly. You know, if the iPad Pro has a really big debut and it's obviously priced significantly higher, I would guess that will bump that number up quite a bit. 
Yeah, I still think the iPad Pro is going to have a big market in education, and I think that's going to surprise people on the upside for the iPad Pro. Because the way it's positioned now is sort of like the iPad, but for professionals, you know, the thing you get work done on. And that's just not that many people um, because the people are professionals working, you know, in their main and they're thinking about what they're going to get for their main device. They have a budget and probably like a baked in preference for something like a laptop. And so I think there's going to be actually be a bigger market and things like education for the iPad Pro. Um, you know, the, the thing about the iPad shrinking so much is what a weird story it is product-wise compared to everything mm-hmm. else Apple has done. Because the iPad was the fastest-growing consumer electronics device ever. Like, nothing has ever sold as quickly, it sold as many units as quickly as the iPad. And then, I mean, it didn't fall off a cliff, but it certainly didn't... Uh, you know, it certainly didn't continue that explosion. It's it's right. it's sort of like, you know, it had this huge climb and then it's just been bleeding out ever since. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, and that's a really weird product story, just generally, not just for Apple. Like it's a weird. It, 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 you wouldn't expect that to be the ending, and I don't want to say the ending, but you wouldn't expect that to be the story for the record-setting consumer electronics product. Yeah, and it's it's one of those fascinating things. I mean, I've, I've written a fair amount about it um, in the past, but you know, I mean, it's it's nuts. I mean, I've, I've got a chart in front of me from a deck that I put together every quarter on Apple numbers, and you know, I got a Q3 2011, so a year on, more or less, from the launch of the iPad, and you've got growth at almost 200% year on year, and then two years later in Q3 2013, you see actually, I guess it's Q4 2013, so just over it's nine quarters later you see the first negative year-on-year growth. So basically two years to go from 200% growth to negative growth. Yeah, that's and so then, crazy. Um, and then with a couple of exceptions, every quarter since then has been negative year-on-year in terms of iPad shipments. It feels like um, the iPod story condensed almost, right? Yeah, but the, yeah, but, yeah. But the thing Same about sort of the shape, I- but just way shorter. Yeah, but the thing about the iPod is that it had a clear substitute in the iPhone, and that's not the case with the iPad. It's not like there's well, a clear substitute yeah. that's taken the place of the iPad. Yeah, well, this is something that I wrote about a while ago too. You know, if it's funny because, you know, of course, Apple started working on the iPad before they started working on the iPhone. And if they'd ended up launching in that order, then you could have seen both the iPod and the iPad cannibalized by the iPhone, especially as it got bigger. Hmm. And yet, because the iPad launched after the iPhone, it feels like, oh, you know, what's substituting for it? But it's increasingly clear that at least one of the things that's causing this sort of diminishment in, in iPad sales is large iPhones, yeah. you know, especially the smaller iPad, you know, which is so close in size to the 6 Plus in particular, that size. Um, but, you know, because they, they launched in the opposite order, it feels like, no, that can't possibly be the case. But it does feel increasingly like that's a big factor. Yeah, I think that's true. The upgrade cycle thing is also a really big deal. I mean, you know... Uh, we still use an iPad 2 in my house. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't use it as my main iPad, like the one I use for work and meetings and stuff like that, but my kids use it for all kinds of things at home. Right. And uh, my wife uses it. And it's an old iPad now. And when I get on it, I can't stand how slow it is, how heavy it right. is. Like, Because I use an iPad mini, a Retina one, and, and it's... Uh, but I mean, and my iPad mini is two years old, and I'm not upgrading yet. Mm-hmm. Um even though at work I had the budget to do it, but I just chose not to because it wouldn't wasn't enough of a bump, and right. uh, to be worth the, the the new the, the added cost. And 
And, you know, it's funny because we've been talking about this upgrade cycle with the iPad for a long time now. And we've talked about it in this podcast before. But I say we, meaning the Mac community, is sort of saying, hey, there's an upgrade cycle coming for the iPad. It'll show up. And it still isn't showing up. (laughs) You know, like when is this, when are these upgrades going to happen? I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting, actually, because one of the things that was announced on the earnings call yesterday was easy to miss. But was, you know, in Apple's accounting, it, it has to defer a certain portion of revenue for several of its products um, because those products are eligible for software upgrades, which are free. Um, you know, it started with iOS. It's now true for OS X as well. Um, and uh, and there was an accounting change that they announced yesterday, which is that the deferral period for the iPad is lengthening from two years to three years. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean that's exactly the life cycle that Apple's expecting for iPads, but it means that they're recognizing that people are holding on to these devices longer than they had planned for, even in their financial accounting. Um, you know, and is three years really the length, you know, I mean, iPad 2 is more than three years old at this point. And, you know, I've, I had responses to my tweet about that yesterday um, from people saying, oh, we still have an iPad 1 that we use. So, um, you know, these older iPads are sticking around. And a big question in my mind is just, you know, when those do become unusable, you know, somebody breaks them or, you know, they just become slow or the battery starts to get to the point where it doesn't hold the charge or whatever the, the issue might be, are people going to bother replacing those? You know, if they're happy with an iPad 1 or an iPad 2 at this point, you know, four or five years later, um, is a new iPad really going to be the replacement for that device? Are they going to get a tablet at all? And if they do, are they just going to go with one of these cheap tablets? Because if they're happy with it, they might be happy with, you know, Amazon's $50 tablet or something else that likely performs at a similar level, um, you know, versus, you know, a new iPad that's, you know, streets ahead in terms of its performance. So we were on the verge of this um, uh, with our iPad at home this year. Like I, mm-hmm. over the summer, it wouldn't charge. Um, right. So that it, we could never get it to boot up all the way because it just wouldn't charge up and we could have it plugged in and it would show the little charging battery icon but would never actually create a charge. And I even took it into the Apple Store, which is not something I usually have to do. I mean, usually I can troubleshoot stuff on my own as well right. as they can in the store. But anyway, they, they took it through. They, you know, uh, took it through most of that, uh, all their troubleshooting steps, and none of them worked in the store. And so, you know, they kind of told me about this way to swap it out um, uh, for a replacement one because it was just the battery that seemed to be the problem. Well, anyway, I'm thinking to myself on the drive home, oh, geez, like this iPad is not central to my family's happiness. Right. It's just a nice thing to have around. Am I even going to replace this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, getting to your point, you know, about what the upgrade cycle and what the replacements are going to be like. And anyway, we get home and I was like, OK, one last ditch effort. And I went through some more troubleshooting steps that I had done before. And lo and behold, the thing rebooted, had a full charge already, which hadn't been registered for some reason. Hmm. And it thought it was dead, but it wasn't actually. And now this thing is still kicking. Right. <laughs> like, okay. So you now have to replace yeah, it. Three or four months later, I didn't have to replace <laughs> it. I'm just like, man, this iPad 2 is just, this sucker's never going to die. I, I say right. that now, I got to knock on wood so I don't go home and find it mm-hmm. dead. But anyway, yeah, it's funny because yeah. it really is an old product, but it's been holding up really well. And right. You know, I, I haven't yet come to a point where anything my kids want to do with it makes it insufficient. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, it's, you know, a testament to kind of how good the original product was. I mean, obviously the new right. ones are a lot faster, but, you know, the original one's still perfectly adequate for a lot of the stuff that people want to do with them. Which explains um, why it would sell so fast. Right. 
but then be done growing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of other things that are growing fast, um, you know, the Apple Watch, it's very hard to know just how fast it's growing. Um, you know, we mentioned last week Tim Cook had said, I think, at the uh, WSJD conference that um, Apple Watch sales were up year uh, quarter on quarter, didn't say how much. Um, and the other products category where Apple reports Apple Watch sales along with quite a few other things was up quite a bit um, year on year, up a little bit quarter on quarter. Um, we don't know the exact numbers, but it, it seems like from just kind of reading between the lines and we talked last quarter about kind of how you go about estimating this stuff, that they probably sold about three and a half, maybe four million of them. Um, you know, my estimate last time around was two and a half, maybe three. Um, so it is up, you know, a million or so quarter on quarter. Um, so that's consistent with what Tim Cook was saying. But that, that puts it kind of on the same trajectory as the iPad, which is kind of interesting. So the first couple of quarters, similar sort of sales to the iPad. Um, we're obviously going into the holiday quarter. And, uh, you know, that, that could be fairly significant. And I do want to talk about that. But one of the other fascinating things that was on the earnings call was Tim Cook mentioned there are 13,000 or over 13,000 apps now for the Apple Watch, which, you know, is, is a pretty decent start. But he also mentioned there are 1,300 native apps. Um, which means only 10% of the apps in the Watch App Store have been either updated for you know Watch OS 2 or created for Watch OS 2. And that seems like a tiny number. It does. Um, but that's very much kind of in keeping with what we've been talking about for the last few weeks too. I'm trying to remember, what did you say, what did you suspect the average selling price was right now for the Watch? Well, um, you know, before they reported last quarter, I'd have guessed 500. Um, you know, just kind of sort of midpoint between the two lower, you know, the two mainstream models plus a band. Um, But um, it certainly, you know, based on sort of interpolation and triangulation and all the rest of it, last quarter it seems much closer to 400. Hmm. So the reason I ask is because there's a a potential interesting effect at, you know, in this next holiday quarter, Hmm. which is that Apple doesn't know how well this thing is going to sell during the holidays. I don't think anybody knows, and I really don't think Apple knows. I, I think the truth is the the launch quarter for the watch, the numbers weren't any good because it was so supply-constrained. Mm-hmm. I think the September ending quarter wasn't very good because it's just not a time that people buy stuff like this. Right. The holiday quarter has the potential to be pretty big for Apple when it comes mm. to the watch, especially because as a jewelry item, that's the kind of stuff that people buy as gifts for Christmas. Right. In this case, it's a it's a technological jewelry item, but I think people still, Mm -hmm. I think Apple's positioning it as jewelry and, and, uh, and so there's going to be that element of it. Right. And it has the potential to have a pretty big quarter. And the reason I think this is a big deal is because, you know, so this could be the source of Apple beating expectations. Right. I mean, the, the phone could line up. It has an unusually good watch quarter. Right. If, if the, if the phone lines up about where everybody's expecting iPads, Macs, all the other product categories do about what everybody's expecting, but the watch kind of has a breakout holiday quarter, which if it's going to have one, it's set up for it. Um, it, you know, I mean, that could be an added billion or two and, Mm. and that's enough of a difference where it could be them beating, you know, beating both their guidance and consensus estimates by a noticeable amount. Right. Now, I'm not like predicting this is going to happen, mm-hmm. but uh, it certainly seems like it's within the realm of possibility. I could see a lot of people getting watches for Christmas this year. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the iPod always had huge Q4s. Right. 
Um, so, you know, the iPod sold well throughout the year, but it was a huge gift. Right. And, you know, iPods were cheaper. I mean, the average selling price by the time Apple stopped reporting, it was somewhere between 150 and 200, I think. So, right. you know, significantly cheaper than even the cheapest Apple Watch. But, um, you know, that always did really well at Christmas time. Um, and so, yeah, you can easily see watches, you know, at least among certain sectors of the population doing very well as gifts for the holidays. And especially if, you know, you've now got a lot more options available with new bands and colors and finishes and all the rest of it as well as we talked about before um so yeah there's a few drivers i mean they could well have a big quarter i think and it'll be interesting to see what happens to asps too because um you know iphones always see much higher asps in the first quarter after new iphones launch because that's when all the early adopters buy them and they don't spend a bit more um but i'm curious to see if asps go up um for the watch not that we'll have direct visibility into that yet but and there may be a way to kind of triangulate that a little bit, but that'll be interesting to watch too. Yeah. I, you know, the interesting thing is uh, with the watch as like a Christmas item compared to the iPod is that neither of these are like core important like products, right? I mean, the iPod was always just a convenience. And I think the watch is something like that too. I, I also want to say, I think if Apple's, if I were, I'm not in marketing at Apple, but if I was, <laughs> I would, uh, I'd make a big deal out of the health features. I've seen anecdotally a lot of people getting Fitbits as gifts, um, you know, or other fitness trackers as gifts. I right. think they're a really popular gift, especially like, I mean, one of the faculty in my department got ones from his kids and, uh, it was a way for them to keep track of his health. And so they get to see, you know, his information as it gets posted, uh, you know, on the right. website and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, they kind of prod him to, you know, get out for a walk or a bike ride or whatever. But uh, but I think that's another thing that could drive sales during the holidays is you're giving somebody a watch, not just because it's jewelry, not just because it's a cool tech product, but because of the fitness aspect of it. I mean, I don't know if you saw in the news, but IBM is now... Mm, I was just going to mention yeah, this. Yeah, selling either subsidized... They're either doing free or subsidized watches for employees, and it's actually dependent on their health insurance plans right yeah no i think that could be huge i mean between you know companies uh, subsidizing watches themselves directly and companies um through their health insurance plans subsidizing watches much as they subsidize gym memberships and things in the past you know that becomes really interesting because one of the things that's made allowed the iphone to be so huge is the fact that carriers subsidize them right. um and therefore you know that the price to the consumer was significantly less or at least the apparent price to the consumer was significantly less than the retail price. Um, and if that were to happen in large numbers with the watch, with companies financing them or subsidizing them in different ways, um, you know, that could be really interesting. You know, um, and the way you mentioned that, uh, that ASPs came down on the iPod, I think that's going to happen in the watch. I think mm -hmm. in a couple of years you're going to see $200 Apple Watches. And, uh and I think you're going to see that. Uh, and I think that opens the door more for those subsidized watches to come through health insurance plans or employers. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one other thing that I thought was interesting in earnings that doesn't relate to a particular product, but um, it's one of these sort of undertold stories, is um, enterprise revenues. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Tim Cook said that Apple's generated about $25 billion in, in revenue from businesses over the last four quarters, essentially on an annualized basis at least. 
And I think he said that was up 40% year on year. So, I mean, A, that's a huge number. It's about 10, just a little over 10% of Apple's total revenue during that period. And B, 40% year on year is significantly higher than Apple's overall growth during that period. So, you know, enterprise becoming a really important business for Apple. Um, and, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, there was a remarks, and I can't remember, I think it was in response to one of the questions on the earnings call, you know, does Apple need this enormous enterprise sales team to keep driving this? And, and the answer was, no, we don't think we want one. Hmm. Um, and it got me thinking about, you know, all the different companies that I've seen that sell into businesses and how enormous their sales forces are and how much a, of their total cost um, compensating that sales force is in both salary and then incentives. Um, and Apple gets away with, you know, $25 billion in revenue, which, I mean, I just quickly glanced on my phone, but I, I think e EMC's revenues were about that much last year, um, you know, in total. Uh, and that's, you know, a big enterprise services company um, mm. with a massive enterprise sales force. And Apple does it with minimal direct sales force. And obviously they're using IBM and other companies as indirect sales forces and carriers are part of that too. Um, but yeah, just amazing business that's come, you know, almost by accident. I remember, you know, enterprise support on the iPhone, you know, seemed like sort of a, almost an accident um, when it first arrived and, you know, with the active sync support and so on, I think in iPhone OS too. Um, but, you know, things have really come a long way since then, I guess is the point. And as somebody pointed out um, to me on Twitter, you know, that's bigger than the iPad business at Apple, yeah. at $25 billion. Um, And I would guess iPad's a big component of it. But, um, but yeah, really quite significant at this point. I'll say, you know, and IBM, the bigger news item with IBM and Apple this week wasn't the watch thing. It was that IBM announced they're saving something like 200, what was it, $270 per employee that owns a, that is using a Mac instead of a Windows PC. Hmm. I, I mean, and these are in savings and support costs because they just right. need so much less support. And at this moment, there were a bunch of Mac IT professionals that were like shaking their fists saying, this is what we've been telling you all along. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's, a message like that coming from IBM, especially when you consider yeah. the scale with which they're deploying Macs, um, that is huge. And, and I think yeah. you're going to see it, that's the sort of watershed moment, like this news item and, and IBM's whole decision to move to Macs. That's mm. the kind of watershed moment that I think we'll look back on as a big game changer. And I, yeah, think, no. I think we'll mark this year as the year that, that Apple as an enterprise company um, was taken much more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And I think IBM is going to be a big part of that. And this is one of the things that I kind of talked about when the IBM deal was announced, and I think it's really coming about now, which is IBM and Cisco are two companies that have made a great deal of implementing things internally and then selling those things to their customers, essentially. Sort of, right. you know, we, we, you know, BYOD is a big example of this. So the whole bring your own device trend in the enterprise, both those companies were some of the early adopters with that. And they both did it in quite different ways. Um, but essentially they both embraced that and then sold that vision to their customers and said, here's a bunch of stuff that we can help you um, with doing that and implementing this in your company. And so when IBM embraced, um, you know, Apple with this partnership in terms of selling Apple stuff, you know, shortly afterwards there was a message that came out saying basically IBM is going to be helping companies to deploy Macs and other Apple products within the enterprise. And, you know, a big part of that will be eating their own dog food, as it were, right. you know, using these devices internally and then, talking up the benefits that they've seen as part of the sales strategy. And, you know, nobody would take Apple seriously if they said, oh, we use all Macs and we've seen these benefits. Well, of course you do. But IBM is a third party that obviously, you know, IBM in particular with its history and PCs 
um, you know, will be taken extremely seriously. Uh, and if they're helping companies to adopt Max as well and sharing best practices and so on, I think that could be really huge. More than for almost any other reason, I wish Steve Jobs was alive for this. <laughs> I, I mean, because although yeah, his history wonder, with IBM obviously is so long and yeah, and I just wondered whether the deal would have got done by Steve Jobs. <laughs> that's, a that's, that's a question. Like, was he too stubborn to have you know yeah. eventually done that deal with him? I mean, you know, Apple's got a lot closer to Microsoft. Um, obviously, there's the IBM deal. You know, there's other deals like Cisco, which was not obviously a traditional enemy, but. Although, you know, of course, Steve Jobs did bring the Microsoft investment in when he returned. So it's not like he didn't ever deal with them. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> total speculation, obviously, but I have no idea whether he would have done that deal in it, the first place. If he was still alive, man, it would have been so tempting to redo that picture, like to do oh, a you know, decades later version of him flipping off the IBM logo, like the one from <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, no. I've seen a lot of Photoshopped versions of Tim Cook standing in front of that logo. That's sign, right. But, yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing um, about IBM and all of this and where it really is sh- making a shift is that IBM is bringing software development, custom software development for enterprise to the Mac. And this mm-hmm. has always been where the Mac has had the biggest struggle because big corporations always engage in custom software development, right? It just makes more sense for them to create right. custom product, custom software products for their internal use. And there's never really been a robust um, uh, marketplace for internal customized Mac development. And and mm-hmm. what IBM is bringing now is not just the actual service, but also sort of the message that, that this is worth it. And right. uh, developing on the Mac is easier now than it's ever been. And corporations can now look at the Mac and think, oh, we could, we could just choose Macs. And we can mm-hmm. still do all the custom software and the other things we need to make this happen. And that's that's a huge, huge change. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's right. Um, any last thoughts on the earnings before we move on to our other quick topic? No, not really. I think this is going to be a really fun conversation in January, talking about the holiday. Yeah. I think there's yeah. so many interesting things that could happen. iPad Pro, the watch in the holiday quarter, you know, to see how the iPhone does. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to the other topic we said we'd talk about briefly, which was this Mashable uh, interview come article um, about sort of Apple's design and um, manufacturing process. And it's kind of interesting because we did talk a bit about that a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Elon Musk's comments about um, the car. Um, But uh, kind of... Aaron, you were the one that suggested we talk about this. Do you want to just sort of say what stood out to you from this piece? Well, I think it was a chance for Apple to really make a big deal out of how much hardware still matters. In fact, that message was specifically articulated. And Mm. I think this is why it wasn't just Phil Schiller in the interview. Um, Right. Because having a senior hardware manager there with him was a way to really kind of drive home that this, this whole article and the whole message is about hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, all the little stories were just about how, you know, I guess it's just, there's so much that's moving to the cloud, so much that's all about software. Startups are all about software growth of huge companies like Facebook, Google are primarily about software. And yet Apple is kind of in this article telling the story that look, hardware still matters a lot. And when you look at what Microsoft is doing, right, with the Surface uh, Book and the in the in the Surface Pro, it's clearly there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, 
people need nice devices to interact with their software and Apple's sort of, you know, like pointing at its banner that is staked in the ground decades ago. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, as, uh, as software, as services, as connectivity and all this stuff's becoming more important, you know, there, there's, there's been sort of potential that the device would sort of fade into the background, that almost you want it to disappear and just have the sort of software experience pop out at you. And yet with phones in particular, and perhaps in contrast to things like TVs where you really kind of do see the, the hardware other than the screen kind of disappearing into the background, but with phones because they're so personal and with devices like smartwatches and other things that you wear and therefore sort of are articulations of your personality and your personal style and so on, you know, that design, if anything, becomes even more important, right. you know, because of how central these devices are to our lives and what we want them to say about us and the fact that we're using them all day long and so on. So, um, you know, that was definitely a big message. And there's this great quote about, you know, the cloud and how, um, you know, just because we use the cloud doesn't mean we want an ugly device to use it on, you know, right. that in fact you want it to be just as nice as ever. Um, John Griever pulled an interesting quote out uh, from the piece about the manufacturing process and, and specifically this um, binning um, approach, which was a reference to the fact that, you know, even though Apple makes all the little parts or has the parts made for, um, say, a MacBook, um, there are tiny variations in thickness and things like that. And that essentially they have this very careful process where they match a slightly larger piece to a slightly larger opening and a slightly smaller piece to a slightly thinner opening and things like that, such that every MacBook ends up being slightly different um, because the exact way those pieces fit together is different um, and they have this very clever way of kind of matching those up. And yet, you know, the whole point of being different, and this was kind of the quote that I think Gruber ended with, was um, to make everything seem the same, essentially. So yeah. this kind of embrace of differences in pursuit of sort of um, homogeneity in the end of the day. Well, and not so much. I mean, homogeneity, sure, but it really just is about consistency, right? Right. Because so much of the way Apple designs these products um, is about the little things. And if you're going to be making a big deal out of the little things, then then the thickness of a, of a Apple logo and the, you know, the back of the laptop screen makes a difference. I, I was kind of caught up in the fact that, so they gave Lance, the journalist, they gave him a, a MacBook and they asked him to open it. And he tells a story about how he put his, his left hand on the bottom and then his right to hold the bottom in place while he lifted up the top. And he was sort of corrected in that moment and told, no, 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 just open it from the top. Don't lift up the bottom. To kind of because the, because the MacBook is so light and thin, you sort of feel like if I'm going to pry these two halves apart, you know, I need both hands. But no, they've engineered that that uh, hinge mechanism so precisely that the weight of the bottom half is sufficient to stay down while you lift up the top. And uh, I know that 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 is such an obsessive approach to design that you would care about that, right? Mm. Like who? Ca I mean, really, like. Most people would say, who cares if you need two hands to open it? Well, the answer is Apple engineers care, mm. you know. But I think users care too. I mean, if you if you used Windows laptops, uh, most of them don't do that. You know, most of them yeah. you do need two hands. And I wonder if Lance Villanoff's main computer is a, is a PC. But, um, you know, I've noticed that with, you know, I have obviously used quite a few Windows laptops over the last 15 years or so. And almost all of them, you need to kind of pry them apart with two hands as opposed to just using one hand to lift the lid because they haven't put the attention into that. Yeah, it actually sent me into a flashback and I was remembering um, when I had the titanium PowerBook that Apple had 
And uh, this was a really cool computer at the time. It was awesome. And one of the features that I would show off to my friends is that when you close the lid, the way the lid stayed, because now they have magnets to keep the lids closed. But uh, at the time, they didn't. It, it, there was a magnet, but it worked in a different way. As you close the lid, a little tiny black latch would get pulled out from the screen by it would get pulled out from the screen by a tiny little magnet and then the latch would hook onto something that was in the base of the laptop. And I would show my friends, uh, these were my friends uh, in law school that sat next to me in our carols and, and I would close the lid and as I closed it, I'd do it very slowly and have them look and watch. And it was like this magical little moment that tiny little hook would come out of the screen and connect with the laptop. And you know, this is funny because this thing didn't even always work right. Like sometimes you'd have to squeeze the, the top and bottom together to get it to hook up right. But the mm. way the magnet pulled out that latch was just so cool. And when I think <laughs> of how far Apple has come from that, really, like when you look back on it compared to today, it's like, man, that's ridiculously awkward, right? But when you think of how far Apple's come and designing those little tiny interactions, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's just such a level of refinement that's so impressive to me. Yeah, and yet you'd think this would be something that others would be focused on and would be trying to emulate. And and what seems to happen so often is that um, it it results in gimmicks, right? Rather than delighters. And I think that's what you know these these things from Apple are best described as sort of delighters. They're things that you didn't know you wanted, but when they're there and you discover them, you're just delighted by them essentially. And you know, Samsung's probably the best example of this, but you know, in Samsung smartphones, there's so many new features and they've kind of dialed back on this the last couple of years, right. but before that, but so many times it just ended up feeling like a gimmick. Like in theory, this is cool, but I've no idea why I want it. I'm never going to use it again. Um, you know, and it, it's, it can be a fine line sometimes, but you know, Apple seems to be particularly good at this stuff. Um, and there was some discussion of the kind of no's, um, you know, so saying no to things and so on. Although, interestingly, they kind of downplayed that a bit in the article. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of saying no to stuff that's part of that. But obviously, there's also seeking out and finding these things that are going to create that sort of delightful experience at the end of the day as well. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be particularly tough for other people to, to emulate. And, and one of the things that came out very strongly in the article is this idea of having different teams work together on stuff. Um, and I think this is where Apple's fairly kind of non-rigid uh, internal structure really helps them and that they can have these different teams work together in, in ways that would be very hard in a company where they sit in very separate silos. And there's a specific example of this speak tenor, I think it refers to it as, this sort of uh, combination speaker and antenna where they had those team, two teams work together. And I, and I can't remember if it's Phil Schiller or, or Turnus in the article but it's quoted as saying you know we ended up with a bunch of speaker engineers that knew more about antennas than any other speaker engineers in the world right. and a bunch of antenna engineers that learned more about speakers than any other antenna engineers in the world and uh you know the point is you can bring people together in this way when they're not sort of stuck in silos and working in their own little boxes on stuff um and that's something that apple seems to do uniquely well my wife's cousin is a speaker engineer at apple and I no. really want to like, I mean, if I asked him point blank, he wouldn't be able to tell me stuff. So I think I'm going to, next time I see him, I'm going to casually ask him questions about how much he knows about antenna design. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this piece before we wrap that up? No, just that, I, I mean, props to Mashable. It was a beautiful article to read. It was really well written, first of all, but mm. I, love, I really like the visual design of it. I, it was just a pleasure to read. And so... Yeah, props to the design team. They did a good job on it. 
Yeah, no, it's great. And it's, it's fun. I mean, Phil Schiller doesn't do that many interviews. So no. it's always fun when we get these little insights. There's been a couple recently. There was uh, Stephen Levy's one that I think we mentioned a week or two ago as well. But, um, you know, there haven't been that many. And, and so it's always fun to get these little insights and to get this more sort of off the record or, or at least off the cuff, I guess is a better word for it, off the cuff yeah. type remarks. It, it is easier to get him to do these interviews when he can show stuff off. I, I think he just yes. loves Apple and he loves showing off what all these amazing people have designed and created. So, and that's yeah. what this article is all about. So, Yeah, no, great fit in that sense, yeah. Okay, well, we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick and it's my turn this time around. Um, I've mentioned that I, I am still using Apple Music fairly heavily and uh, I've been using it to discover lots of new stuff and I, I tend to add stuff to my library and then if I continue to like it, it sticks around and if I don't, I just remove it from my library. Um, one of the things that I've discovered over the past couple of weeks is an album called Blood by a woman called Leanne La Havas. Um, and it's L-A space H-A-V-A-S. album is called Blood, as I said. Um, it, this showed up in one of the playlists that Apple Music recommended to me. Uh, one of her songs did and, and through that I discovered her and, and this album and it's a great example of kind of what I've been using Apple Music for, which is discovering some of this new stuff. And really, I feel like I'm discovering new music for the first time in several years, um, just because the, the process is fairly frictionless. Um, and that's something that I, I wrote about a while back. But this, this album is really fun. It's kind of an interesting sound. Um, the the artist is, uh, she grew up in London. Um, it's... I think the iTunes description um, calls it a, an acoustic and hushed hybrid of alternative folk and soul. So <laughs> that's sort of an interesting sounding mix. But yeah, it's just a really unique sort of sound. It sort of mashes together several different kinds of sounds. And she's she's a bit of a mashup too. She has a Jamaican mother and a Greek father apparently. And um, so, you know, interesting background there. But uh, yeah, interesting album to, to check out. It's something that I've been enjoying quite a bit recently along with quite a few others. So... Uh, take a look again her name is Leanne Lahavas, and the album is Blood all right well we'll wrap up with that uh, thank you for being with us as always we'll be back to our regular programming as they say next week we'll have a question of the week again for you as we usually do in the middle of the episode um, and discuss a variety of other topics as well as usual so thanks for being with us and we'll see you again next week <laughs>